Greetings, everyone. This is Peter DeArger with episode number 14 of Y2K, an autobiography podcast. This one is going to be similar to the last one. I'm going to read out a couple of the articles that are basically part of the history of Y2K. They were stored at the year2000.com website in the archives section. The other part of this presentation will be another one of the inserts with James Lauber, and this time we're going to talk about how computers fail in strange and mysterious ways. If you're watching this on the on-demand section, in other words, you're supporting us and you're looking at the graphics, my apologies, there won't be that many graphics for this one. Basically, there'll be a graphic for each one of the articles, and that's about it, except for the very end part where James Lauber comes on and we'll go into some depth on some strange computer problems. One of my primary resources for the old articles, because I wanted to get the actual ones that were posted, is the Wayback Machine that's up on the Internet, waybackmachine.com. If you go there, type in year2000.com, it'll bring you up a screen showing you the various snapshots that this service took over the years. If you want to get the most complete ones, go to about March or April of the year 2000, and that's when it started to wind down. We had posted a couple after January the 1st, 2000, but not that many. By the time year 2000 came along, the reason for having the website was pretty much over. We had put it up for eBay, if you remember that. We had put it up for sale. We got some fake bids. At one point, people thought I was going to be a millionaire. No, they never panned out. That's okay. One of the reasons we put it up for sale was to indicate that we were done with this, that the project had been complete, that Y2K had been taken care of. Now, today we're going to talk about three different articles. And as per the last time, I will give the dates when these things came up. The first one is from the December 12th meeting at the United Nations. It was a rather large meeting. We had 120 different nations represented at that meeting. I was not invited as a speaker. I was invited there as a guest, and I sat in the audience listening to this, and it was interesting. A couple of days later, after the meeting, I decided to pen an article to give a bit of much a report on what happened some of the progress, and some of the still obstacles that were in our place. So, let's start. The title's a bit of a pun. An unreal question with a focus on the UN, the un part, and the real part, and the, um, the question part that came up that still blows me away. On Friday, December 11, 1998, I sat as a Canadian delegate at the back of the United Nations trusteeship chamber. In front of me, Y2K coordinators from some 120 member states discussed Y2K regional and international consequences from the floor. As I cycled through the translator channels and listened to them discussing the problem in the voices of the world, I could not help but heave a sigh of relief. Awareness had finally arrived. We are certainly not out of the woods yet. There is still much work to be done in the coming months. But at least attention is being paid to the problem. For myself, there was a sense of immense satisfaction. This summit meeting would finally shut up the reporters who still ask, is it real? This meeting, if it did nothing else, would put an end to that question once and for all. I and others have earned the right to heave that sigh of relief. For nearly a decade, we have worked with the press, cooperated with them, argued and cajoled them, pleaded with and even shouted at them to get them to understand and report this problem responsibly. There have been many skirmishes, many hand-to-hand -hand altercations. This UN meeting was the final battle. We'd won we could move on to higher ground. In early 1996, the Financial Times of London wrote an editorial stating, PCs are not affected by this problem. The letters besieged them, and the next day they printed the closest thing to a front-page retraction I'd ever seen. Since then, they've provided constant, accurate reporting on Y2K as a business issue. Ted Pensinger, an American reporter, asked in one of his columns if Y2K was a storm in a teacup. He also received email and was convinced this problem was not an illusion, he now covers the topic on a regular basis. In August 1996, The Economist wrote a bizarre article. On one hand, they admitted the problem was real in some sense, but also wrote the following. As the previous millennium approached in Europe, hucksters persuaded gullible peasants to give up their homes and farms in anticipation of the coming apocalypse. 
A millennium on, the coming apocalypse business has become more lucrative still. The suggestion being, of course, that anyone trying to convince you of the severity of the problem was a huckster. The economist was less open to constructive criticism. The reporter who wrote this piece spoke to Robin Gernier and myself on the phone and stated, I've put the clock forward on my PC and nothing happened. Therefore, this is all hype. Pointing out that the World Bank did not operate on a PC seemed pointless. But even the economist has finally come around. In time, truth arrives to everyone. In September 1998, they published a brilliant Y2K 15-page article by Francis Crancross. Guess what? Turns out the problem is real after all. In May of 1998, Robert Samuelson, writing for the Washington Post, wrote that he was guilty of journalistic incompetence for ignoring the Y2K issue. Not all the battles were won. Some were lost because we just gave up out of weariness. On November the 27th, 1998, the Globe and Mail ran an article by James Coates of the Knight Ritter Tribune. In this recent article, he wrote, Who is there to point out that human clerks will quickly see that the computers mixed up the birth date and that pilots tend to know where they are flying without looking at the calendar? I could have written to him or to the Globe and Mail and point out that while it is true that the pilot does not need to know the date in order to fly a plane, the system that schedules that pilot to fly that plane on that date to that city does need to know the correct date. Or I could point out that while the pilot does not need to know the date in order to fly, the plane does. Boeing, not some doomsaying huckster consultant, but Boeing, has identified a navigational system on some of their planes that would not have let the pilot take off because it would not have worked properly. Specifically, it would not have allowed the pilot to complete his pre-flight check. They were replacing these faulty devices. This statement of fact, that some planes would not have taken off, can be confirmed with a simple visit to the Boeing website or a phone call to Boeing. Why didn't I write the letter? Because I'm tired of arguing with some reporters who should know how to do investigative reporting or who have made up their minds and refuse to be confused by facts. I didn't write the letter because the article was on a newswire. My letter to the editor would neither receive the same circulation nor prominence. Besides, considering who I am, of course I'm going to disagree, etc. I don't know how Mr. Coates would have responded to a letter or a phone call. All I know is that I and others failed to contradict him. In a sense, we're just as guilty as he is. But all of this bickering is now behind us. The UN held a Y2K summit, and we were all there to discuss the consequences of and the solutions to the problem. After lunch, Secretary General Kofi Annan addressed the assembly and was followed by Ambassador Kamal, the chairman of today's events. Ambassador Kamal mentioned that during the lunch, they held a short press conference during which a reporter asked, Is this real? On hearing those words, I visibly sagged in my chair and was overcome by a sense of despair. Is it real? I can understand the question is, how big is it? Are we spending too much money? What exactly will fail? Can you identify the embedding systems which fail? Have we done enough? Did we leave things too late? These are all legitimate questions. But the question, is it real, is now beyond my understanding. I no longer know how to answer that question. We are surrounded by evidence of Y2K. I can demonstrate specific systems which fail. I can demonstrate specific embedded system failures. I can point to the vast sums of money being spent by conservative companies to fix the problem. I can take you to the courts to listen to Y2K lawsuits. I can do all of this, but I cannot convince a cynical reporter that any of it exists. Part of me wants to lash out at the reporter who asked the question. Certainly, considering the derogatory labels attached to consultants like myself over the years, I have earned the right to dish out some of what I was served for daring to raise a warning on Y2K. But what would be the point? Name-calling an invective serves no useful purpose. The evidence of Y2K lies before us. Those who care to examine it will ultimately, like the economists, change their tune. Those who ignore the evidence are unreachable. We can no longer waste time with them. All remaining time must be spent on fixing what is broken and working around what remains. Ultimately, what is important is this. On Friday, December the 11th, 1998, a YTK coordinators meeting was held at the UN. More than 120 countries attended to discuss the reality of Y2K. If a reporter chooses to believe we were there to discuss a problem which does not exist, that is their choice. But we choose to believe our senses. The problem is real, and we're fixing it. Yours truly.
Peter de Auger, December the 14th, 1998. I guess part of the reason why I think these articles are, well, important, relevant, is that they are voices from the time. It's not me looking back 20 years ago and commenting, and people have pointed out that maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just spinning all of this to make ourselves look good. Well, we've been accused of a lot of things. We were accused of hype. We were accused of calling for the end of the world. And the articles contradict that. We didn't do that. We did the opposite. Pointed to a problem. We said it's real. And we tried to fix it. To the best of our ability, we tried to fix it. And surprise, surprise, we did. Because in the end, nothing much happened. We had some problems. We're still having problems. 20 years later, we're still having Y2K problems. But we fixed it. And we fixed it because we had meetings like the UN meeting, where 120 different countries voiced their activities, let us know what their progress was, pointed out the areas they were having problems and needed help, and we provided that help. Over the years, it's been suggested that we hyped it up too much, that we were calling for the end of the world and everything else. And while there were a lot of magazines out there selling bomb shelters and gold and supply food and water and all the rest, those same accusations were leveled at us, us being the people who were trying to create responsible awareness of this. Now, back on April the 14th, 1999, I basically said, okay, I need to sit down and actually put in writing what I think are sufficient preparations that we need to take for Y2K. So here from the horse's mouth, so to speak, is the article. The title was, How Bad, How Long, How Likely? A Y2K personal preparation uh, outline, if you wish. This one is a little bit longer than the others. It needed to be. Okay, let's get started. The discussion controversy surrounding Y2K preparedness lies not in any argument about how many cans of soup per person per day, but in how many days we should prepare for, if any. What depth of self-reliance is called for, if any? What threats to safety, if any, will Y2K disruptions impose on us? All of which boils down to how bad, how long, and how likely are Y2K disruptions. Once these most basic questions are answered to our individual satisfaction. Then we can make reasonable plans for coping with what we believe might occur. It should be obvious, but I guess it's worth highlighting, that asking how bad, how long, how likely automatically assumes a particular place. The answers to these questions for Toronto, Canada will differ perhaps greatly from Tokyo, Japan, and Moscow, Russia. This article will make no futile attempt to answer anything but the most basic aspects of these key questions for different cities, countries, or geographic regions. Instead, it will raise the questions which require honest answers. It will also provide a rationale behind my estimates, opinions, as to what a reasonable level of preparation is. Another glaring weakness of this article is that whatever answers I can provide will be neither precise nor certain. They will be merely educated guesses about an uncertain future. I make no claims to omnipotence. For that level of certainty, you'll have to visit other websites. So, if you're expecting a How to Prepare article that focuses on how many cans of soup, water, and candles you should be squirreling away, then this article will be a disappointment. If, on the other hand, you are looking for something discussing what levels of disruption are possible and therefore what levels of preparation are reasonable, then you just might find this article useful. Okay, so... What level of preparation is reasonable? I'll start with the answer to this question and then proceed to elaborate on why I believe in my answer. Some are suggesting that two or three days is sufficient. I classify this advice as south of prudence, but not for the reasons you might think. It's not because I think Y2K disruptions might be longer or shorter than two or three days. It's because I think preparation plans of two to three days are not plans at all. One could go into practically any household in the Western world and with only 10 minutes warning, bang nails into the doors, cut off water and power, and even in the dead of winter, come back three days later to find the inhabitants a bit smelly, but none the worse for wear. A three-day outage of all services would typically impose hardships in three areas, heating, water, and food. If you had no food at all in the house, you'll end up a bit hungry. 
The water problem is solved by filling a few pots, pans, in the bathtub, assuming you cleaned it recently. Heat for three days? Candles, or even a makeshift oil lamp using olive oil, combined with lots of blankets and an extended family hug, and you'll come through your three days crisis with little, if any, damage. Perhaps a better better understanding of why deodorant sells so well. One exception, and this will keep arising as you think about Y2K preparations, is medical needs. I would expect anyone who had to have medication every day would have at least three days to a week supply on hand at all times. But that's an assumption on my part. So, two to three days is insufficient as a preparation plan for any crisis. It's not really a plan. It's a decision to do nothing. Note, I have not said that two to three day outages, disruptions due to Y2K are likely. All I've said is that a two to three day preparation plan isn't a plan. On the other end of the scale, call it north of reason as a counterpoint to south of prudence, we have the six months to 10 year preparation plans. I don't buy the notion of Y2K disruptions lasting 6 to 120 months. I can imagine no reasonable scenario where such lengthy disruptions are feasible. Are they possible? Sure. In the same way it's possible for you to get four flat tires at the same time. That's possible. But I don't see too many people carrying four spares in the back of their car, just in case it happens. This is where the discussion gets heated. Such lengthy disruptions are admittedly conceivably possible. But preparing for everything which is conceivably possible is not the best use of our time and resources. It's possible that a deranged killer will storm into my room in suburban Canada, but sitting in a corner with a loaded gun wearing a bulletproof vest each and every day, just in case. Jeez, let's all agree to keep a small grip on reality. But I won't dismiss these scenarios out of hand. In the nitty-gritty details sections of this article, I'll examine long disruptions more closely. What I do believe is a reasonable amount of planning. What do I believe is a reasonable amount of planning? The Montreal ice storm comes to mind. It was an unexpected crisis, lasting two to three weeks in the dead of winter, over a large geographic region and affecting a large metropolitan city. This was not a non-event. Some 20 people died, not because they froze to death, but because they brought gas-powered generators into their homes and died of carbon monoxide poisoning. Pity they didn't know how to use the tools they purchased. If your level of preparation is sufficient to cope with a two- to three-week disruption of services equivalent to what happened in Montreal during the ice storm, then I would state you have a sufficient level of preparation to cope with anything Y2K might throw at you in the proactive countries such as Canada, USA, UK, Australia, New Zealand, Nordic countries, Israel, Belgium, Holland, Ireland, and even South America to a certain degree. In other parts of the world where less preparations have been done, then I'll increase those preparations to four to five weeks with the notable exceptions of Russia, much of Eastern Europe, and Italy. What are sufficient levels for these three exceptions? I honestly don't know. I don't have enough information to hazard a guess. A side note, and this is not in the article, obviously the whole issue of Italy is a question mark that still hangs over the whole Y2K debate. The next installment of this webinar will do two things. It will read an article that I wrote uh, entitled The Question of Italy, an analysis that was written on January the 6th, year 2000. And I'll add in some extra commentary on that and try to figure out where we went wrong, because we certainly went wrong. Uh, Italy, to the information we had at the time, and that's part of the issue, uh, did very little. And to the best of our knowledge, not much happened. So we're going to come back to that one. We're come back to this objectively as we can. So continuing with the article. Here's a prediction. Some people in the proactive countries will find two to three weeks preparation insufficient. They will be supported in their time of need by those, most of us, who find even two to three weeks of preparation excessive. There's one answer. Now the big question, why do I believe that? Why do I believe that two to three weeks is sufficient? Before we get into the nitty-gritty details, a minimal amount of personal background information is required. Why? Because predictions of any sort are based as much on the specific experiences and expertise of the soothsayer than anything else. If you don't know my relevant systems background, then how can you judge the value of anything I say relating to systems, in particular the failure and repair of systems? Start as a computer operator in 1977 with IBM. 
I worked mainly in the online banking department. I stayed with IBM for about 18 months and during that time participated in the remediation of several system failures. I was possibly even the cause of some of them. (laughs) I was a new operator. The longest failure I can recall lasted about 24 agonizing hours. The causes of these problems ran the gamut of power outages, programming errors, operator errors, hardware failure, and smoke billowing from devices where even the slightest suggestion of smoke was a sure sign that all was not well with the world. Most of these problems were handled according to pre-established procedures, even the programming errors. These were solved in two-step process. First step was the application of a hastily concocted patch or kludge created by some bleary-eyed caffeine-supported programmer. Errors of this sort always occurred at 3 a.m. and involved the paging of a programmer usually involved in something far more constructive, such as sleep. These kludges were applied continuously, until the program gave up and succumbed to the programmer's attempts to beat it senseless. Next morning, when the world is supposed to look better, the programmer would sometimes, not always, examine the program in closer detail. Sometimes this autopsy resulted in additional changes, and if we were really lucky, some documentation of whatever modifications the programmer had inflicted in the dead of night. In addition to the online banking systems at IBM, I also worked for a large food chain, computer time-sharing company, a bank, clothing retailer, and an insurance company. The positions I've held include those of operator, programmer, business analyst, supervisor, system optimizer, systems manager, and general problem solver. During 15 years of direct computer experience, I've never encountered a computer problem that affected a mission-critical application to the point where it was totally unusable for more than three days. This does not mean that such failures don't happen. It only means they're rare. The scene during such a crisis was almost pretty much the same. A SWAT team of programmers, anywhere from one to five individuals, the largest team I remember was a total of seven, would barricade themselves in a room until a solution was found and then take turns babysitting the solution until a better, more robust, long-term solution was installed. I've seen the babysitting phase last for as long as several weeks in rare situations. These life experiences were not always painless. Companies can lose millions of dollars per day, sometimes per hour, when these events occur. Of course, if you can lose that much in an hour, you're obviously making that much an hour when things are okay, so you can afford a few losses from time to time. What's important about these situations is that they occur regularly and seldom, if ever, make the 6 o'clock news. A case in point. About 50% of companies report they have already had Y2K problems. But how many were reported in the media? How many were you aware of? Not very many. Interesting, because it means that Y2K problems are already occurring and people are fixing them before they become noticeable. With that as a necessary background, let's get to the core of my reasoning as to why two to three weeks is sufficient. It boils down to a very simple observation. A Y2K problem cannot be both pervasive and hidden at the same time. Stated differently, saying something is both everywhere and difficult to find is a contradiction. Again, if it's everywhere, we can't avoid finding it. Why is this observation important? Because it strikes at the heart of all the doomsday scenarios. First, some facts. Fact one, most companies in all industries with the potential to cause widespread outages are now taking Y2K seriously. Point two, The most important industry sectors, financial, power, telecom, medical, oil, transportation, chemical, are sharing information freely behind the scenes. When a problem is found, the information is shared. Point three, most competing companies inside an industry are not tightly dependent upon each other in the same way financial communities operate. Point four, the financial community is further ahead on this problem than any other industry. Point five, failures in some industries, like medical, generate a very localized effect. Serious, especially to the people infected, but not regionally or geographically catastrophic. The first three points, combined with, if it's everywhere, we can't avoid finding it, are the real reason long-term disruptions, 6 to 120 months, of entire industries are no longer reasonable scenarios. Note, two years ago, points one and two were not true. Uh, recap. Uh, the, the point one was most companies in all industries with the potential to cause widespread outages are not taking it seriously. Point two was the most important industry sectors are sharing information. So two years ago, points one and two were not true. They are today. 
Two years ago, when the majority of companies were still ignoring this problem, it was possible to overlook problems. But today we've achieved critical mass. Here are some of those scenarios. At the core of each scenario lurks the fear of embedded systems as well as software problems. Now, these scenarios are the ones that people use to talk about the end of the world as we know it, the Teotihuacan stuff, long-term disruptions. So the first scenario, power. We could suffer total blackouts as isolated failures have a domino effect across the landscape. The counter-argument to that was... Despite the fact that 79% of utility companies have finished inventory and assessment, source, Canadian Electrical Association, January 21, 1999, no one has identified a situation that would have cut off power. The chances of the remaining utilities coming across something at this date are slim, not zero, but slim. The reasoning here is plain. If 79% of the assessments fail to find anything, it's because it's likely it doesn't exist. Point B. If problems do occur, they will not be unexpected. Power companies will closely monitor their systems on December 31st. Decisions to redirect power due to whatever failures might occur will not be done automatically by dumb machines. Y2K is unlike other problems. It's scheduled. We won't be asleep at the wheel. We'll be expecting problems. That alone is enough to avoid a certain percentage, not all, not even a majority, of problems. Next problem, oil. We could suffer a worldwide shortage of oil, which would cripple transportation and lead to starvation due to an inability to transport food. Uh, A note, an aside again. That's not me speaking. That's the end of the world, folks, speaking. This is the um, the fear, not the thing we were pushing. The counter-argument to this, ooh, a bunch of points. First point, A, the oil industry has worked very hard to, at the very least, communicate what they have found to each other. They are not a shiny example of proactive Y2K work, but they do realize the necessity of sharing information. Next point, most oil companies do not operate at full capacity. OPEC just cut back on oil production. That's why your gas prices are up. Point C. The oil industry is not a tightly connected industry like the finance industry. Note, a significant failure in the North Sea would affect all oil companies working there, but would have zero impact on the Gulf. D. Oil can and is being stockpiled through 1999. E. There is a long time, measured in weeks, between a problem at the wellhead and a shortage at the pumps. F. If the North Sea oil field were to experience a problem, other oil fields would increase production to take up the slack and make more money. The same logic holds true for refineries. G. But what if all the oil fields had problems? Here we're back to the reality that if a problem exists everywhere, then we would have found it by now. The fact that we've woken up to the problem is the number one reason why system-wide problems are not possible. Could there be isolated problems? The answer, without hesitation, is of course. Of course there will be problems, but no system-wide problems. Next major point, chemical. Chemical plants could blow up, taking years to replace. We've run out of fertilizer, reducing crop yields, and causing starvation. Plant a garden! Again, counter-argument. Practically all the arguments used for the oil industry. B, noticeable exception is this. Chemical plants are dangerous places. Accidents here can and have killed thousands of people. We always have an option. We can shut down the plant if we're not certain everything is okay. Yeah, costly. Yes, time-consuming, but prudent. In the meantime, stockpile chemicals throughout 1999. Okay, this covers events lasting more than six months. What about the disruptions greater than three weeks and less than six months? Will there be disruptions lasting longer than three weeks? Yeah, lots of them. But they won't affect entire industries. And if your company is not affected, I suspect that expanding your market share to take advantage of your competitor's weakness will be foremost in your mind. In summary, because most companies are no longer in denial, because we're sharing information, because most companies are not tightly linked to their competitors, and because systemic problems cannot remain hidden when most everybody is looking for failure, because of all of this, long-term, industry-wide problems are no longer reasonable scenarios. I place no faith in them. Finally, at the 11th hour, there's one thing now on our side. We're no longer marching blindly into the future. We know problems lie ahead. We're on the lookout for them. We're expecting them. We're planning for them. Because of these efforts, not blind faith, we'll overcome whatever problems remain. For myself, 
I'll be flying that night, from Chicago to London. My family, they'll be at home waiting for my return, and our preparations will not exceed what I've deemed reasonable in this article, i.e., a Montreal ice storm. Yours truly, Peter Diager, April 14th, 1999. Okay. That article, I would like to go back and make a few changes to it. Some of my fears were overstated. But at the time, it was the most optimistic stance I could take based upon what I knew. I would like to make a few changes to it. And that's why I think reading the articles is important because it does give an accurate snapshot of where that my head was at at the time. The next one is one that actually informed that article. It gave me the confidence to speak optimistically, and it was something I had not been able to discuss for a long, long time. Title of the, first off, the article is written on December the 20th, 1999. I wish I could have written it a year earlier. I certainly had the information, but I was under non-disclosure, as you'll see. The title of the article is A Best Kept Secret. Now, remember where these articles are again. I'll remind you. They're on the Wayback Machine. Go there, waybackmachine.com, type in year2000.com, and you can go back to the actual article. For the record, in the archives area, there are 197 articles posted there. No, I'm not going to be reading all 197 on this podcast. A couple is okay. After a while, I think they would just get repetitious because of the way we were communicating. We were repeating the same message over and over and over again from different perspectives. But basically, the information was the same. We have a problem. We need to fix it. And here's the progress. Here's where we are. So let's get on to this one. This one's not that long. And then we'll get over to James Lauber, and he's going to have a chat with me about the mysterious ways and the strange and wonderful ways that computers can fail. So, A Best Kept Secret, December 20th, 1999. I grew up in South Africa and remember a particular twist on an old aphorism. Many hands make lice work. I arrived at this mutated quotation for two reasons. The not unusual experience in South Africa of observing a troop of monkeys engaged in communal grooming, and a belief that aphorism should be something more than mere recitations of obvious truths. As I've grown older, not wiser, merely older, I've come to realize that aphorisms reflect the obvious, because it is seldom apparent to many of us. The original version of this old saw, while it lacks the ingenuity of my twisted creation, is nevertheless more useful to those of us who pay attention to the obvious. Many hands do make light work. This was never truer than it was during the Y2K project. Without the combined efforts of all of us around the world, we would never have arrived where we are, all but ready for Y2K. From the very early days of my involvement in this debacle, I've been privy to a number of secrets. The biggest secrets had to do with the coming together of organizations who were the fiercest of competitors, and yet they realized that to solve Y2K properly, they would have to cooperate, if only to coordinate how they would exchange data in the coming years. Some of these collaborations were not exactly legal. They might be seen by Big Brother as violations of antitrust laws depending on the nationality of the companies involved. The net result was that while a lot of good work was taking place behind the scenes, these groups did not exactly seek out publicity. Some of these concerns were put aside when the U.S. passed a bill which made those types of intergroup discussions legal and even incited the creation of other collaborative efforts. These informal industry forums included efforts in the oil, finance, chemical, medical, transportation, telecommunications industries, and even, God help us all, government. Over the years, I've wanted to write about these behind-the-scenes efforts, but it was not in my place to do so. Many times, while I was aware of these collaborative activities, I was under non-disclosure agreements not to discuss their activities in any detail. With respect to one such collaboration, I am now finally in the position to go into a bit of detail and describe one of the few silver linings which arose from Y2K. In the interest of full disclosure, I've been appointed as the official spokesperson for the High Tech Consortium, HTC, for the express purpose of telling their story. It's important to point out the position is a non-paying one. When I was introduced to HTC, I was more than impressed with their accomplishment and wanted to publicize it as an example of some 
of the other Y2K collaborations which have taken place over the last decade. A few discussions between HDC and myself determined that an official position as spokesperson was the best way to achieve their goal of publicizing their success, and my personal goal of communicating some more of the good Y2K news, which many seem to deliberately ignore. The first question is, who is HTC? It's a formal collaboration between the following companies. AMD, Arrow Electronics, Celestica, Cisco Systems, Compaq, Dell Computers, Digital Microwave, Exabyte, HCL America, Hewlett-Packard, IDT, Intel, Jabal Circuit, LSI Logic, Lodan West, Marshall Industries, MCM, uh, MCMS, Motorola, Qualcomm, Quantum, SCI Systems, Seagrade Technologies, SGI, Selecton, Sun Microsystems, Symbol Technologies, Tektronix, and Unisys. Their website is, make that was, located at www.hitech2000.com. These are not companies you would normally see sitting together at the same table. To say they include some of the fiercest competitors in Silicon Valley is a vast understatement. What could possibly bring them together and hold them together long enough to accomplish anything of value? Same thing which caused other companies to put critical new development to the side, the common threat known as Y2K. One of the primary Y2K concerns of any manufacturer is the supply chain. It only takes a single incident from a single supplier to cause a disruption to a manufacturing process. The more suppliers, the greater the risk. The companies in HTC, despite their competitive and independent nature, are unavoidably linked together by that supply chain. One broken link in the supply chain would affect several, if not all, of the HTC members. How much of a threat was this interlinkage? A study by PricewaterhouseCoopers identified just how important the supply chain had become. Each HTC member shared 20 to 50% of its supply chain with their competitors. Whether they liked it or not, the HTC member companies had become Y2K dance partners. The group of competitors had a single solitary goal to assess the threat posed by the supply chain. To understand the threat better, they had to perform Y2K assessments of each company in the supply chain. These supply companies had a related goal. How could they minimize the negative impact on several dozen clients demanding Y2K assessments? The solution was simple in concept, but unheard of in the industry, cooperation. They would define a Y2K readiness assessment to be used to evaluate all critical companies in the supply chain and share that information. The net result was that a supplier would be assessed by a single HTC company rather than by several dozen organizations. In addition, the costs of assessing the supply chain per individual company in the HTC would be significantly less than if they had gone their separate ways. How much of a cost reduction? The entry fee to join HTC was $15,000 per company. In return, they received access to some 200 supply chain company assessments. To put this in perspective, if an individual on-site assessment cost $1,000, a very conservative estimate, they received $200,000 worth of assessments for their $15,000. Not only that, but the assessments were all done according to a standard level of assessment. That consistency of reporting by itself is priceless. While the dollar savings are impressive, the real savings comes in time. Any one of the companies in HTC could afford to spend $200,000. They are hardly the poor relations of Silicon Valley. But what none of them had, any more than anyone else, was the time to go out and assess all the suppliers to this level of detail. While HTC is proud of their accomplishments, I do not believe they are really aware of what they achieved. Y2K was never a complicated technical issue. Any programmer could come up with the necessary logic and date changes necessary to overcome the problem. Where it became difficult was in the management of the process and in making sure that you would not be affected by incidents outside of the four walls which defined your organization. HTC reached far outside its normal span of control and took a detailed look at the supply chain for perhaps the first time. It's inevitable that they found other opportunities which would benefit all member companies. In the past, when an organization has been formed to combat a particular problem, it has seldom outlived the problem. The question facing HTC and other collaborative efforts is this, what now? Are there additional reasons for working together? What more can, that can be accomplished? It would be a shame if HTC decided, without taking the time to explore possibilities, to disband now that their Y2K work is done. Yours truly, Peter DeAuger, December the 20th, 1999. So, when I'm saying that Y2K is going to be okay, 
It's based upon information like that, stuff that I couldn't speak about at the time. Some of the stuff, the non-disclosures, are still in effect. People collaborated far more than, as I said in the article, was even legal. There are antitrust suits, which means that competitors can't converse with each other to decide on actions and strategies. During Y2K, we ignored a lot of that. Well, John Koskinen came along, and thanks to him and his efforts and Clinton's mandate and all the rest, they made it legal for this type of collaboration to occur. They removed Y2K lawsuits from the mix. They relaxed some of the antitrust stuff so that collaboration could take place. So, enough of the articles. Uh, I'm going to pass it over to James Lauber now and uh, get back to you during his discussion. Take care, folks. James, you're up. Well, thank you, Peter, and thanks for having me back. This was a lot of fun, and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, so focusing in on tangential IT discussions, this time we want to talk about computers fail in strange ways, and why do they fail in strange ways? So I want to talk to non-technical people from a non-technical perspective. Uh, as a starting point, it's useful to understand that by definition, software is nothing more than a large number of instructions that are designed to respond to data in order to create actions or more data or other useful outcomes. So we think of, I don't know, my non-technical friends think of software as something mysterious and magical that you know, knows all that it's designed to and is always coming up with an appropriate response. And that's not true because it's people that have built that software and it's operating on the assumptions that they've anticipated, uh, assuming that every anticipation has been handled 100% perfectly, then you're going to have a perfect outcome. But that's not always the case. All software is susceptible to failing in strange ways because as I started to say, the processing logic can only be as clever as the programmer who built it, and it can only process predictably the data that it anticipates or the interaction that it anticipates using the assumptions that were encoded by the programmer. So <clears throat> logical, reasonable, and thorough assumptions even if that is all going to be the case, and as I said, it's 100% perfect 100% of the time, which by, it, nothing's 100% perfect 100% of the time, but assuming it is, then even the logical and reasonable and thorough assumptions that were built into the program do not necessarily interpret all data that comes in because not all data or not all interactions that come into a little piece of software are going to be one of the predictable interactions, correct? As things grow, even if the original software is virtually bulletproof, as things grow and change in the environment, be it a business environment or uh, some scientific environment, as things grow and change, they will grow and change in unpredictable ways. And the software will then therefore need additional features or possibly additional edit routines or additional exception routines to manage data that was not originally uh, managed data that the, the, the piece of software was not originally intended to be designed to deal with. Further, these new routines are I want to say commonly, not necessarily, but let's say that these new routines are very often inserted by, again, people who cannot possibly have an exhaustive and exact knowledge of all the potential impacts that these new changes may or may not have on all of the existing functionality within that piece of software, within that program. Or they may not even be, and they almost certainly will not even be aware of all of the possible things that could be managed by this piece of software in the first place because they're focused on getting their additional edit routine, let's say, into this existing piece of software within the timeline that they've been given to hand off to QA or quality assurance and et cetera, et cetera. They're under their own time pressures. They don't have time to deeply analyze every potential functionality of a program in order to insert an edit, which just doesn't happen. So, 
the potential impacts can go well beyond the given software application being modified. It's not even enough to say that they might, some programmer might insert and edit, which doesn't consider all possible actions that could be taken by a piece of software. That piece of software is almost certainly going to be getting data from somewhere or getting an impulse from somewhere and producing some kind of an output that's going to be fed into some other system. So that edit that they're going to insert is potentially going to be affecting some downstream piece of software as well. Uh, here's a good example uh, to kind of wrap up this concept. The article that I'll point to, and for those of you who aren't uh, getting the visual with this, they're just hearing the podcast. If you search the tiny URL, uh, I'll name it tinyurl.com slash genome versus Excel. Uh, I should spell it out G-E-N-O-M-E dash V-S dash E-X-C-E-L. This is a great article that illustrates this. It's a National Post article. It points out that most scientists in are using Excel at some point in time. So Excel's been around for a very long time and it's got tons of functionality built into it. Um, and it has assumptions built into it. So it's meant to manage data. And some of the stuff that's built into it is assumptions on what that data looks like. So as it points out in this article, which is a fascinating read, I'd recommend it. As it points out in this article, one of the things that the genome scientists have put into their data is uh, a code for a code DEC2. Now, DEC2 is a genome tag, actually stands for, I have to read it to you, uh, differentially expressed in chromosomes. I have no idea what that means, but the representation that's been assigned to that in the genome is DEC2. When Excel sees DEC2, it's going to interpret that as it might be a date. So it's going to represent, it, represent DEC2 as December 2nd. So if you have a immense, vast body of data and anything that might make Excel think that it might be a text field versus a date field versus an integer field, as simple as that. And Excel modifies the format of that field and modifies the data in order to fit it into the format, the default format of that field, then you're having unpredictable or unanticipated impacts on the data that you're putting in, which is then going to impact potentially the data that you're getting out of that data analysis of genome um, uh, data elements. So that's the example that I thought was a really nice example. Um, and we could come up with any number of examples, but uh, the basic point comes back to software is only as able to deal with uh, input as it is designed to and it will produce output that is going to feed into some other piece of software which is only going to be able to deal with inputs that it was designed to anticipate and manage and because that's the reality there is no such thing as a perfect piece of software and it's very difficult to um, predict what kind of outcomes are going to be the result of software, massively complex software executing. And I think that pretty much wraps up the deal. Um, Peter, um, any comments? Back to you. How does this all sound? Well, it sounds great. And the thing is that a lot of people simply do not understand how computers work. When I was young, I used to read Isaac Asimov. And in Isaac Asimov, there were the three famous laws of robotics. And they are, a robot must not injure a human being or through an action allow a human being to come to harm. That was number one. Number two, a robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. Number three, I'm going somewhere with this. Hold on. A robot must protect his own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second laws. 
Now, it's a science fiction book, and it's supposed to be doable. Here's the problem. I'm a computer person, and I was a computer person even back then. And when I'm reading these things, I'm going, hold on a second. These sound great. But how exactly does a programmer program in the concept of human being? In other words, how do I code that? And in a very strange way, all computer programs are faced with exactly the same problem. You showed the cartoon, and it's a standard one from engineering and all the rest, where the specifications for a swing for the, for the user is, I want a piece of rope hanging from a branch, and on the end, I want something to sit on. But the, the one person sees that description and says, oh, this is what they want. And another one says, oh, this is what they want. And another one does it a different way. And you end up with four or five different applications, which are doing totally different things based upon the programmer's perception. All programming is like that. It does what the programmer thinks people want it to do. And Excel, when they're looking at DEC2, are saying, well, I'm going to be of service to the user, and that must mean December the 2nd. Now, we'll leave off which year it is. It must mean December the 2nd, so I'm going to do the, the user a favor and insert that. And then the poor scientist is scratching their heads, saying, who put the date into my data, and how do I get it out? And goes around in circles. So, yeah, computers fail in strange and mysterious ways because they're written by strange and mysterious people. Yes, and I'm proud to be included in that group. So thanks, Peter. <laughs> thanks for We're that. all in this group. <laughs> okay, then. thanks, James, for this week's insert. Uh, next time, my understanding, and I understand the subject to change, but we're going to talk about a Carrington event. What's a Carrington event? Well, I'll just tell you how to spell it. C-A-R-R-I-N-G-T-O-N. And uh, exercise, some homework for the reader, the listener. Uh, Google it. Carrington event. And that's what we're going to cover off next time. James, say goodbye, and I'll do my close. Thank you very much once again, Peter. I'm looking forward to going through the Carrington event. It's a fascinating thing to look at. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks again. Take care, Guy. Thanks for being a part of this. Folks, this was another one of the inserts for the podcast, Y2K and Autobiography. I hope you're enjoying these. Uh, they're a little bit different. I wanted to give you the opportunity to hear someone else's voice because you've been listening to me now for months and months and months during the lockdown for COVID, and I thought you'd appreciate a different tone. Uh, if you're listening to this, there is more to see. There is more to this podcast than the audio stream. The audio stream I will have at the end, I've actually identified it now, we will have a total of 17 episodes. This is episode number 14, so there are only a few more. But if you go to vimeo.com slash on-demand slash Y2K, that's where you'll find the on-demand stuff. And when you go there, there will be 30 additional interviews from people in Y2K. And there will also be a visual component to every one of the podcasts you've already heard. If you want to save a dollar or two and get a taste for what we're doing on that side, there's a 70% discount code, promo code, and that promo code is Y2KDEJAGER. Y2K Diager. This has been a podcast, Y2K and Autobiography. This is Peter Diager signing off. Be careful out there, folks, and be safe. And we will get through this sooner or later. Take care.